We're in Hebrews 6, verse 9. Well, I have the free Bible version if you want it read out of that. Um. Okay. I was just kind of waiting for everybody to get settled here. Um, Bill, why don't you go ahead and read verses 9 to 12? Okay. But, dear friends, we believe better of you and your salvation, even if we talk like this. God wouldn't be so unjust as to forget what you've done and the love you've shown for him by the care you've shown for fellow believers, something you're still doing. We want each of you to show the same kind of commitment, confident in God's hope until it is fulfilled. Don't be spiritually lazy, but follow the example of those who through trusting in God and patience, inherit what God has promised. Okay. This is not what I would call a, a concerning passage. That is a passage where there's problems theologically. What, in verse 12, I forget what the word is that, that, the, that your translation uses instead of lazy my version uses lazy. Yeah, that's Jonathan too. Oh, okay. God wouldn't, yeah. Verse uh, 12, don't be spiritually lazy. Yeah, okay. This is so you won't be lazy is what my version has. Um, Mine says dull and indifferent. New dull and indifferent. Mine says sluggish. Okay, I imagine the Greek word means all of those. So you, we've, what we have here is a spectrum meaning. <clears throat> most words in most languages have more than one meaning, and that's especially true of Hebrew. Is this written in Hebrew or Greek? Greek. Greek. We're in the Greek New Testament. <laughs> Only we're not. Hey, maybe there's an exception here. <laughs> okay. Hebrew, Hebrew Bible is uh, Genesis Mostly Genesis through Malachi, but there's some Aramaic sprinkled in. In Daniel? Okay. Yes, in Daniel and Ezra. Anything, any observations, questions, or problems that you see in this short paragraph? Well, so he's saying we believe better of you and your salvation, even if we talk like this. He's going back to some of, he's just, um, I mean, he the said, prior discourse. The, the paragraph above is that one complex one that we talked about a lot uh, because uh, it had to do with this, they're crucifying God's son all over again, exposing him to public shame. And, and we okay. liken that to Lucifer's fall. So he's, he's, he knows he's, he said some really strong stuff. And so now he's saying, but we are convinced of better things and you. You're not in that category. In other words, now, do we have any trouble in that sense that, at least as I'm reading it, the justice of God considering the works of man? Yeah, well, yeah. Paul, remember, Paul has come out of a works-oriented relationship. He's going to use that kind of language because so many people are there. And how we recognize, how we we don't just demonstrate that we've rejected God. We demonstrate we've accepted him. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here. It's, it's not, 
earning salvation by your works. It is exemplifying Reviewing. that you are there. It's, it's the same principle that I maintain uh, with the two, with the, the three and three models. One of the things I talk about in ethics that has to do with those models is value, our value. And I point out that we are valuable because we're created in God's image and not because we earned it. Because in our society, we earn our value. Mm-hmm. We achieve things. We mm-hmm. uh, earn things. We, um, we do things that make us respectable and, and so on. We earn our value in our society. But that's mm-hmm. not the way it is in God's We are already valuable in his creation. And we do what we do because we, are, we recognize our value. Mm-hmm. that's already there. So I, that's, that's how I would spin that. The outflow, the, the, cause I think it's in Galatians, let your faith trust be expressed through love. Mm-hmm. Um, my paraphrase of that anyway. And uh, so the outflow is a result of the recognized inflow, not to produce the inflow or right. a hope for that. No, this is, we're not tying apples on the apple tree. <laughs> we're, we're watering it. We're letting sunlight shine on it. We're pruning it. But that's all we do for having it produce apples. It produces apples automatically. It's, it's, not, it's not just Paul talking works language. I mean, one of our favorite verses in you know, John 16, 26, where he says, you know, I don't have to pray for you because the Father loves you himself because you love me. It's like, if you didn't love me, the Father wouldn't love you. I, you know, <laughs> I've yeah. always kind of kind of been hesitant to read on on that one. <laughs> I, I, t- I share that, uh, Mark, but um, I, I take it into, I, I, Jesus is approaching something totally new here to his disciples. And he's casting the relationship, mutual love is what he's casting as their relationship with God. And he's using language, it's human. It's not just the Old Testament where God speaks to people where they are and uses a language they can understand. It's Jesus in the New Testament as well. Mm -hmm. I was thinking this week, too, that God loves everybody, of course. He longs for everybody as if they're his only child. But the people who resist, he can't be close to. He can't have that close, affectionate, tender relationship with. Like he can't be people who don't reject him. And so it's a different dimension to that love. That he, It's an affection mm-hmm. that's transactional that he can't have with the other people because they reject him. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can't get close. Mm-hmm. They won't have him. <laughs> That's the problem. He, like Proverbs says, he's intimate with the upright because he can be. You know? yeah, and he loves that. You know? He's intimate with anyone who lets him be intimate. And there's an enjoyment say, of that person that he can't have with the others. Thinking about Mark's, um, the, the verse there, if, if, God lo- if the Father loves them because they love Jesus, and if we have a Trinitarian understanding of relational oneness, uh, or even just a double, but the Father and the Son have mm-hmm. 
a at one minute settled in relationship that uh, when John says we love because he first loved us, the disciples love Jesus because they have experienced the love from him. The lesson is loving Jesus is loving God. Yeah. Uh, I think that is actually what he's trying to say there. Yeah. It's taking the whole context of that. In John 14. Yeah. Anything else in this? Well, there's the whole, so the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, we think better of you than what we've just said happened. So you're not a rejecter. You are actually in responsive relationship with God. Now, don't be spiritually lazy. What's the risk that is being seen? And how does that work in our own lives? (laughs) Well, it's possible to just leave God by ignoring him. All relationships take focus, time, attention. As a marriage and family therapist, when we don't give attention to our most intimate relationships, they will, that will show up. And so um, I love Jesus's words when he says, I know you. And the, the two class difference between the sheep and the goats always boils down to I know you or I don't know you and God knows everybody, but are we allowing ourselves to be known and enter into that relationship? I, I think that's the clicker. Yeah. I like what you said. To know would be. Go ahead. Go ahead. Bill. Well, I was just thinking that the, to know is not just knowledge. It is mm-hmm. Adam knew Eve. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's that infer to me anyway, the inferred intimacy of relationship in the biblical knowing, I guess. Yeah, I was I was brought up really short about that intimate relationship with my mother. I spend a lot of time doing things for her. And some things for my dad. And uh, she kind of she didn't sit me down i was already sitting at the table while she was eating spending some time with her and she let me know that she felt she let me know indirectly she tried to make it a we spin rather than a you spin um but she let me know indirectly that i wasn't spending enough quality time with her talking to her i was doing things for her all the time i was kind of buzzing in and buzzing out she really brought me up short, and so I've been spending more quality time with her. Consequently, we haven't had that conversation again. Mm. But it, it, it tells me, you know, it's in a works-oriented religion, you don't have a relationship with the person you're working for. You're just working for them, like a slave. And... Um, well. It's when you have the relationship first or the person that you have the relationship with first, that is your goal. Your goal is to be with Jesus. The goal is to be with the Father. The goal is to be with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. That works happen, but so does intimacy and relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In this paragraph, he seems to be saying, in my version anyway, um, then God will not forget how hard you were for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers. 
our great desire is that you keep on loving others. So if, if it's a case of God pouring his love into our hearts, you know, it's like you have to resist that and say, nah, you know, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to sit back here. Yeah. I'm going to put my legs up and just chill. It's almost like God is saying, if you love me, you will love uh, my, my brothers and sisters. He says that, doesn't he? Jesus says that. Well, to me, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that it's an outflow. So we're receiving God's love. We are in relationship with him, showing him love as well. And that is the natural consequence is that it overflows to other people. It can't not. Yeah, I, I was just thinking something along those lines that, that maybe our problem is misunderstanding God's love as God's feeling toward us. He does have that feeling toward us, but if we think of God's love as his actions toward us, God can't act unless we're there to receive. So in a sense, God doesn't love those who don't love him because he can't actively love it. He still has the same you know, feel, tender feelings. His, his love is unconditional, but it's not active because there's nobody there to receive it. That's that is excellent, Mark, because it fits totally with Hebrew thinking. In Hebrew thinking, everything is active, dynamic. There's nothing static, and so even the verb to be is an active verb. Um, and so, love, all your noun forms would be active too. Love would be a verb in a sense, not a noun. I agree. That is a verb. Um, and where is it you can't love God if you don't? Is that also Paul? I mean, this is the echoes yeah. of the Matthew section, um, but it's also, um, I think it's Paul that is saying, um, if you don't love your neighbor, you can't love God, maybe, you know, who you haven't seen. I don't know, something. John. John. Oh, John. John. Okay. John. Yeah. If, you can't, if you can't love your neighbor who you see, how can you love God whom you can't see? Mm-hmm. Because that goes to the outflow. I mean that. Yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. Well, we found more in this little passage than I ex- expected. So uh, it's interesting how this verse twelve ends. This is so you won't be lazy, but follow the example of the ones who inherit the promises through faith and patience. the The antidote to laziness is to inherit the promises through faith and patience. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound like a works thing to me. The promises that... I I think there's an allusion here to Abraham and the promises that were Mm -hmm. made. Mm -hmm. Coming up. Would this include the promise... um, Abraham, you trusted me, and you're righteous. Yes. You know, I have a question about Paul alludes to. Yeah. Well, um, I was listening to a talk by Bernard Taylor, and he feels that that verse should really be interpreted. And Abraham believed God and counted God as righteous. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that? Person? No, I'm not. Um, it's um. 
it's on the Roy Branson Sabbath School if you want to look into it. But yeah, that's in essence what he was saying. And who, who is this? Um, Bernard Taylor. Oh, Bernard Taylor. Yeah. Um, I'll have to take a look at the Hebrew and, and see if that can be translated that way. Um, God, in other words, he believed him and he counted him as righteous, a person who would really fulfill that. Kind of, almost like a parallel thought, you know. Well, it, it does make sense. Okay. Grab my Hebrew Bible. I, I like the way I've heard Graham uh, say it, that Abraham trusted God and God said, that's that's right. That's another way of interpreting. <laughs> so I have my trusty Hebrew Bible here that is taped. <laughs> that would be Hebrews, I mean, not Hebrews, Genesis 15 6. 15, six. So, and he trusted in, in uh, Yahweh and he counted him for him. Righteous. There's an Othnok little sign under in Yahweh, meaning there's a bit of a there's a stopping point. And he trusted him for him. It's a little awkward if he's counting God as righteous. And he can't I mean he counted him for him as righteousness. Oh, it's not righteous, it's righteousness. It's righteousness. Um, it's a feminine form of, well, it's actually the noun form, which is feminine. So he counted him, literally belonging to him, righteousness. And I don't think you would use that construction if you meant God, Abraham and God, it'd be a smoother construction. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm afraid I can't agree with Bernard. Um, I'd, I'd love to, <laughs> you know, but just reading it in the Hebrew, I don't, I think that's a questionable interpretation. What I find interesting as we jump ahead to Hebrews 11, where we'll have more detail about these people who by faith believe yes. God. The you Hall know, of Fame. Yeah, the faith. Hall of Fame. And, and I go, some of them make total sense to me. Abel, Enoch, you know, Moses, Abraham, Jacob, you know, and I always chuckle a little bit with Abraham when you go, yeah, how many times did he hide behind Sarah's skirts and say, no, she's my sister. You know, God is so gracious in, and then there's some, you know, there's Sam, Samson, Gideon, you know, some of those stories just don't end very well. Um, Or Samson at least Um, had a good ending, but rather, you know, I go, God is so incredibly gracious and saying, yep, you're righteous. You know, I just think that's such incredible graciousness on God's part to put all these people in this, you know, in this list. Anyway. All he had to offer was that he trusted, you know, I mean, he didn't have a chance to turn around and do anything. You know, he's dying. That's that's long been the way I've read it, because even in chapter 15 of Genesis, where Abraham trusts God and God considers that his righteousness, mm-hmm. you go down a mm-hmm. few verses and he's saying, how do I know I'm going to get the land? And so God <laughs> goes into this land deed thing that is so bewildering to everybody. It has to do more with the ancient Near East than anything else, because Abraham doesn't completely trust God to yeah. keep his promise. 
-hmm. And then, oh, sorry. And then he, because he messes up with Ishmael, I mean, mm -hmm. he has Ishmael, mm -hmm. God invokes circumcision. There would never have been circumcision if it hadn't been for Abraham, not trusting yeah. God enough to wait for Isaac. Hmm. So the circumcision relating to Ishmael um, is after so by yourself. Let me explain something about the dynamic that's going on that underlies these texts. When you made a covenant in the ancient Near East, you cut a covenant and you literally cut a covenant. And the way you usually did it was to take an animal, cut it in pieces and hand the piece over to the person you're making the covenant with. And the, the person might say the, the, the leg of this animal is my leg. The, the heart of this animal is my heart and, and so on. And then say, uh, this, this is what you do to me if I don't keep my terms of the covenant. Woo. Uh -huh. We actually have examples in the ancient Near East of this kind of covenant. There's an Assyrian text that has this uh, in a treaty form. To cut a covenant is to make a covenant. Cut a covenant? So when God says, take those animals and he cuts, and, and Abraham knows exactly what God wants when he says, take some animals. Tells him what to take. So he takes the animals and he starts cutting them in pieces. And he makes a little pathway through the pieces. So there's there's body parts on this side, body parts on that side, so that each partner in the in the uh, covenant has their body parts. And then God descends in the form of a torch and passes through those body parts. Signify, you may cut me in pieces if I do not keep my terms of the covenant. It's one of the most awesome condescensions of God. But he never asked Abraham to pass no, through. Abraham didn't have to walk through it at all. So that's the first cutting of the covenant. The covenant God made to Abraham, like Paul says, was a promise. It was not a cut. Mm -hmm. So Abraham moves on and has Ishmael and God says, oops, I guess we need to cut the covenant again. And this time it's going to be close wow. home. Lest you ever forget again. Wow. That I keep my promises. And because you took the covenant out of my hands and you tried to make it happen, it has to be on you. You have to cut yourself. If you, if you violate it, no, no, you have to cut yourself. This is a making of the covenant again with God because Abraham took it out of God's hands and tried to cut it himself by having Ishmael. Had to try to fulfill the promise himself mm -hmm. by having Ishmael. And that thank you. Thank you for explaining that background. I I've understood the covenant before, but never that connection to circumcision. So wow, thank you for making that clearer, Gene. So, Gene, um, it says, he goes, it looks like we have to cut a covenant. This is what you will have to do if. For generations, for you always, so you always remember that your mistake in taking the covenant in your own hands. That's how I see it. Wow. Do you think in some way that covenant ties in with the cross and Jesus' sacrifice? 
Well, that, I tie it more to the first time that Abraham had to cut those animal parts and God passing through those animal parts and taking it. I had a student come after, after Books of Moses class one day after we had just gone over this. And he said, you know, doesn't this have to do with Jesus' death on the cross? Didn't he, in a sense, allow them to do that to him? Not because he didn't keep the covenant or keep his promise and the covenant, but because they failed him. Hmm. That God goes above and beyond everything that we ask. Yeah, exactly. Make sure we understand that He keeps His promises. I think you're right on, and that's what my brain was telling me. Because Romans three, twenty five, twenty six, God did this to demonstrate His, his righteousness. righteousness, and righteousness. that's exactly because what's in all, going all times on. He passed over sin. He did not. Yeah. They did not suffer the consequences of, of sin, which is death. Exactly. And that the question about God. So, yeah, yeah, you can tie that to the promises of the covenant. You can also tie it to the death of the wicked and, and what Jesus is trying to accomplish mm -hmm. by dying on the cross. Wow. Just a lot packed in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that verse in Romans 3. In this way, God shows that he himself is righteous and that he puts everyone who believes in him, uh, believes in Jesus. He puts right everyone who believes in Jesus. What translation are you reading? Uh, good news. I thought so. That's the best one, I think, for those for verses. Passage. Yes, it is the best one for that passage. My favorite. It's all in <laughs> yellow. <laughs> so, Gene, he promises... Abraham, the land of people and a blessing to the world. That was a promise, not really a covenant. Well, that's a good question. What is a covenant? And, and if you take uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, his uh, definition of a covenant is a bond of trust. Yes. Covenant promises are all bonds of trust. They can't be ratified unless you believe those promises and you trust God to fulfill them. And that's the thing Jesus accomplished on the cross. Let me demonstrate to yeah. you the truthfulness of my word. Graham was quick to point that out always. So it's a bond of trust, and so you don't it's cut contract. me. It's not a contract. And that's been our problem. We viewed the covenant too long as a contract, mm -hmm. not a contract in the Hebrew Bible. Right. But when he walks in between the animals, he he's saying, "I this cutting, is the covenant." He's cutting a covenant in very traditional ancient Near Eastern modality. Mm -hmm. Sounds weird, but our language still. Let me cut you a deal. It's not a contract. It's just I'm going to cut you a good deal. Yeah. Somebody's word. Wonder if that doesn't come directly down from that kind um, of thing. That's where my brain comes from. <laughs> so circumcision was well, you cut a deal, but it wasn't the, you know, it wasn't a good deal. <laughs> I when I when I share this in class and I use circumcision, come to circumcision, the guys in my class always just go kind of. Uh, <laughs> they don't really like that. <laughs> 
because Abraham was a grown man. But to me, to me, it's it's helpful to understand that why Paul would do away with circumcision and say, "Look, you don't need circumcision. You only need trust. Circumcision was simply because you didn't trust God in the beginning, but if you trust Him now, you don't need circumcision." Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you said circumcision might not have ever happened without that mistake, I was thinking forward to the New Testament of how many problems that would have solved for the early church because you had all the people who were going after Paul because of circumcision and just really making his life miserable. (laughs) And that could have all been avoided. It's just an interesting thought. Um, One of the things that I was thinking about in relation to verse 12 the don't become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And this is just a thought from my own experiences. I wonder if the, the faith, because thinking about the difference between contract and covenant, you know, contract is all about rules and sometimes about profit and like not breaking the rules and penalties if you break the rules. And covenant is all about relationship. Um, and I feel like faith, part of, part of faith is that in any intimate relationship, you're going to have conflicts and you're going to struggle with each other and you're going to talk about it and you kind of work it out. And I think is part of that is having the confidence to come to God and to do the same. And we see that Abraham, you know, when, before the destruction of the city, he, he went back and forth and argue might be too strong of a word, but he definitely discussed with God, like, no, if this many righteous, would you save it? And so we see that, I I see that he had that confidence to come and to sort of wrestle with God. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a, that's another thing, that element that's, that comes when you're in an intimate relationship with someone. And Mm -hmm. I wonder if part of faith is not having the confidence to come and to do that wrestling with God without fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, I think the Bible has lots of rich times of wrestling. Uh, all you need to do is read the book of Job. Yeah. Bill. So I have a question and this may go to wrestling. I so often hear baptism used like the new circumcision, at least to my ears and my brain. Um, Unless you're circumcised, you can't be part of this group. And unless you're baptized, and I get the idea that you can't belong to the group, but the tying of salvation to circumcision or the tying of of baptism to salvation, my question is, have we made baptism the the new circumcision? Some pastors have, I think. I've heard sermons, you cannot be saved unless you're baptized. And I'm going, oh my goodness. You know, doesn't it say he's the savior of all mankind, especially of believers? You know, that would mean all sorts of people are going to be saved who have never heard of Christianity even, let alone baptism, right? Yeah. I think we have a terrible time accepting the unconditional nature of God's love, that that. God loves us no matter what you do. I mean, uh, 
You know, there's nothing you can do that would make God love you less, nor is there anything so good you could do that make God love you more. That that's that's not the way our world works. And so we want to we want to put some conditions on it. Um, you know, we were saying if you know if it hadn't in the early church, if it hadn't been circumcision, it would have been something else. They were going to find a way to 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 be divisive. Um, uh, and it's it's just really hard for us to accept that that God really does work that way, and that it's it's safe to go into a kin a kingdom that that works on on unconditional love. It just doesn't seem right in the world we live in. Back to no. that antithesis of what we do. You know, we can't. And Gene, you were talking about this in our culture. We can't even introduce somebody. Well, it's a challenge for me to introduce somebody apart from what they do or what their education is or some status. And I'm, I'm challenged myself. I had a person ask me what I do. I, I wanted to say, I'm a child of the king of the universe. I am a father of two sons. I, am, I wanted to say who I am instead of what I do. Because I just am so much in rebellion to this emphasis on do. Sorry. And I was just about to say that I see the way I see baptism is that natural outgrowth of wanting to demonstrate my relationship with Jesus. Yes. And I have found that when I when students are one to the love of God and they understand him and know him, the Sabbath baptism, everything else just takes, takes place. And I don't have to push anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, it's, it's back to our value. We do what we do because we are valuable, not to earn it. Exactly. And so we do baptism, not because we want to be saved. We do baptism because we are saved and we want to demonstrate that salvation. We, we are not trying to please God. Yeah. In a sense. In, in, the, in the legalistic sense, you know. Yeah. It seems like kind of in, in line with what Mark was saying. We sometimes, well, in a majority, I think, of the Christian world, we think God is so concerned about what we believe instead of is love flowing through that heart? Is my spirit able to enter and flow through that heart you know what i mean like in romans 2 it says those who've never heard the, the torah they'll but they have the spirit of god working on their heart will be justified before god and the people who have the torah won't if, if there's no love there they're not responding and being sensitive to the spirit of god moving on their heart and, and part of that is because a legalist, a, a legal view of salvation and, and atonement and the law and all of that really kills love. I think Alan White's words, uh, a legal religion is a loveless, Christless religion. Mm -hmm. Bounce the right words around your end doesn't matter, you know about this relationship or anything like that. I sinned, but I sinned under the blood. <laughs> I've heard that well, people say that me. The other thing, if you can find a legal excuse, you can do anything. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I, 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 kind of extending that a little bit, the the legal system really undermines what God did in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. There is no grace in that because if if this was a legal transaction, God didn't forgive. He got paid in full. Eye for eye still, right? If you got to balance that scale. Yeah, there's the thing that I think pains me the most about legalism is that people in legalism try so hard to manufacture what God wants. And it's always a fraud. It's, it's a total fraud. For example, they read that they're supposed to love God with all their hearts and all their souls and all their mind and all their strength and their neighbor as themselves. And so they think if I work harder, if I just work harder, I'll prove to God that I love him. You know, it, mm -hmm. it doesn't dawn on them. They don't have love. They don't have the love of God in their hearts. They have only what they can manufacture, which they think looks like love and acts like love and is love, but isn't at all. Exactly. And then some of them get very uncomfortable with love. And I, I remember one of my friends telling me how a woman who was, who's married to a man who's very up, very high up in the church at one point, And, and she said, I, I just don't like all this love talk. It's mm -hmm. just love, love, love. But there's things we're supposed to do. Mm. So an example I've heard is, you know, um, driving the speed limit. And if you break it, you get a ticket, but there's grace or mercy if you don't get the ticket or you don't get the consequences that are due you because you broke the speed limit. On the other hand, we can, so let's just take the speed limit and say it could both be love. And I mean, in the one sense, I could drive the speed limit because love is in my heart. Mm -hmm. And I could drive the speed limit because not doing so risks um, justice I don't want to encounter. So I'll obey. And I've now justified the obedience as love, but it's probably oriented to more self-love mm -hmm. than other love. And I could drive the speed limit because um, less concerned about myself, but those around me, um, you know, um, benefit by my willingness to not drive whatever I want to drive at whatever speed I want to drive. I, I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, in my head, it made more sense than maybe it sounded. Well, what you're, what you're trying to do is, is put use the framework of the legal model, but keep the the way we look at it in trust and love model. Well, yeah, because I think we can look at behaviors and judge them legally acceptable or not. But um, if we're looking at fruit, the fruit might actually produce the behavior that we have justified or not justified as legal. Um, I don't know if that... Yeah. Because the legalist is looking at the behavior and the relationalist, if you will, is um, looking at something very different, even if the behavior is present. My brain hears what you're saying, Bill, and it reminds me of someone who said... There's nothing more dangerous than a man on a mission for God. 
who doesn't know him. <laughs> and oh. that's brought out, think about Paul, who was Saul. Um, also, John 16, 3, opposite of 316, easy for my brain to remember. John 16, 3 says, I will, there was come a time they're going to throw you out of church. Mm-hmm. They're going to kill you even, thinking they're offering a service to God because they don't know me or my father. I was reading an article about uh, one of these, the leaders who wanted to say the election was a fraud, etc. And uh, he's very, very sane and just a really top, top student, Howley, at Stanford. And people thought he's very, very moderate, very mellow. But he, he came to the conclusion that what was wrong with the world was that we hadn't taken an Augustinian stance of how Christianity should operate. There was another gentleman who lived during his time who took a very moderate stance. Everybody be free. Let everybody um, be convinced in their own mind type thing. He said, that's what the problem with the whole world, you know, how he said that. And he has this very dominating uh, perspective that we have to get this to be a Christian nation for God. God wants it. He expects it. And the end justifies the means. <laughs> and it's sad because I think of John 16, 3, and I think, boy, is that ever a setup for that, you know? One, one of the things that I bring up in my class to help understand the difference between legal model and a love trust model. Because what happens is, and, and your, your illustration, Sue, maybe undergirds this, is you can, ha- you can have two people that look very the same. And then there's, as the roads continue, they divide and you don't even notice they're dividing and they end up in the, in the opposite place. Mm. But I, I asked my students, what kind of a relationship would you have with a judge? Say you, mm. say you broke the law. You end up in the courthouse but on trial, and the judge pardons you. What kind of a relationship would you have with the judge? You'd like him. <laughs> You'd like him. Would you sit down at table with him? I don't think you would want that, you know? You'd always uh, be afraid he might change his mind. Yeah, if I said the wrong thing. Yeah, everybody or can. <laughs> because probably if he did pardon me, he would give me a stern lecture. That wouldn't make me feel intimate. And I think that's why I, at one time in my early larger view experience, I'll just tell this little story. I've never told it before in public, but I'll tell it now. I was in a very small group. It was one of the first meetings of a small group of people who are larger view, and it included Graham Maxwell, um, the Pine Knoll people, Donald John, uh, Herb Douglas. I'm forgetting him. He was a very famous professor that taught with Graham. 
Pravancha. Pravancha. Dr. Pravancha. Wow, what a group. <laughs> Dick went before he took a journey somewhere else. And, and Dick had been the one who got me there so that I was able to meet with them. I was still a college student. <laughs> did you say it was Dick Wynn? What? Was, was, was Dr. Ivan Nielsen also in that group? No. Oh, God. When you mentioned Dick, was that Dick Wynn? Yes, Dick Wynn. Oh. Um, mm -hmm. We were talking about how to say it in larger view versus how to say it in the legal model. And I tried to maintain that it was possible to use the legal model and still be true to the larger view, to use the, the language of the legal model. Mm -hmm. I was in that stage where I was struggling with Ellen White and her legal language and, and trying to make it work and, and trying to figure out how it all fit together. And um, <clears throat> I got countered, of course, by the group. I was wondering. <laughs> and uh, so I went back to the drawing board and, and I studied some more. I spent several more years studying and, and about, that was 1980, about two more years. And I came back to Loma Linda to get my master's degree. And Graham Maxwell was my mentor and advisor. And I let him know that I no longer believed I could use the, large, the legal model <laughs> to tell the larger. <laughs> and so... He did. I remember him telling me one day, you know, Gene, we could use legal language to explain the larger view. But he said it would be misunderstood. That's the problem. I remember him saying, because um, I, I was struggling thinking, I read surety and substitute and atonement. And I think, how can I, how can I embrace the larger view of Ellen White says this? And so I, I asked him a question once. I said, these words, you know, what, what do we do with them? And he said, well, my answer is to people who those words in legal perspective is that they have forensic eyeglasses on. And so I, I went back to the words and I still couldn't grasp how I could, you know, put substitute and surety. Taking me a lifetime. Yeah, now I can, now I can, but at that time it was like, it was just too ingrained, the, the forensic yeah. was just too ingrained, I couldn't wrap my what, mind around it. What has worked for me is to turn all those terms into experiential terms, rather mm -hmm. than legal terms. Mm -hmm. we, we wouldn't want to say that God has never used the legal model, however, I mean, it does, it is necessary in order to meet people who think that that's the problem. Um, so I, you know, I, I think I, so I don't have to explain away all that language and try to transform it into something that I don't think it was originally intended to be because God, God has always met people where they are. If, if he, if they need, you know, if they need threats and lightning and, and smiting, God will, God will sadly say this isn't what i want but this is the only thing you'll hear and i think god has done the same thing with the legal language he said this isn't my ideal but it's what you can understand you know if if my dying on the cross and paying for your sins makes you feel safe to come and listen some more that's what i'll give you would 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 you not agree with that or um I think I did it more to satisfy myself than to satisfy other people. 
so I could live with it. <laughs> okay. And, and, but I did have a confrontation one time. Um, this is before I started teaching full-time in the theology department. Um, Jerry Winslow was chair of the religion department at PUC. I was working in the records office, working on my doctorate. And uh, Jerry called me one day and he said, Gene, I'm doing a seminar on the atonement. It was a theology seminar for seniors. He said, I would like you to come and deal with your views. I understand you're similar to Graham Maxwell. I'd like you to come and present what you believe. And he says, I'm going to have, and he named two people in the department who were very forensic. He says, I'm going to have them present as well. I said, wow, you really want to open Pandora's box, don't you? Mm. He said, well, I thought it was about time. This is his last year there. <laughs> his last year there? Yeah. Is um, because they, did they tell him to leave because of that? No. But they tried to, those two people tried to keep me out of the department because of that. Um, One interesting Jerry at that time, they had had pretty much persuaded Jerry that they were right. So you need to know that as a background. Did he ever? So he called me up again and he said, um, I'm going to send you something in intercampus mail. It's an article by Ellen White in Testimonies Volume 4, I think it is. And uh, uh, he said, these two people that are forensic, I'm, I'm avoiding their names for, on purpose. Uh, these two people that are forensic are going to be using that article as the basis of the discussion. Well, a student in the class who was a friend of mine and had been a student of mine in the contract class that I taught on campus, came to me in great distress. He said, not only did they come once, they came twice. They were given two times. Well, there were two of them, so that makes sense. But she said, they came twice, and all they've done is lambast your views. And she said, they've tried to, to pull me out and get me to say things that they can clobber. Because she was larger view, raised larger view by larger view parents. I was a little nervous, and so I called Graham Maxwell <laughs> on the phone, and I said, um, what do you suggest I do? I said, I don't like walking into a debate, and this was what I feel like I'm doing, is walking into a debate. And one thing you should know about Graham, he never would debate. He was opposed to that, because it turns religion into a power struggle instead yeah. of it. Right. After humorously chiding me for wanting his advice. <laughs> like he wasn't that I shouldn't rely on anybody for advice. <laughs> you know? um, he then said, got down to business and he gave me some very good advice. He said, ask to be the one to pray. Pray first. And before you do anything else, talk about inspiration and how it works. So, I thought, that's great advice. Thank you very much. And so I asked Jerry if I could be the one to pray at the beginning of the meeting. And he granted me that, my request. So I walked into the room, and it was just like, I don't know how to describe the atmosphere. It was like 
something ready to spring. <laughs> you know, not, not really that dramatic, but, but the, the intensity of feeling in the room, it was not friendly. It was absolutely not friendly. The trap is set. <laughs> so I, I walked in, I tried to be as friendly as possible, but it was pretty hard because everybody just sat there looking at me. Mm. I was curious, she, here the monster is. <laughs> now we're in trouble. Uh, Jerry came in last, sat down, introduced me, and I'd had the prayer. And I asked God to guide me what to pray. And I don't remember now what I prayed. But it was kind of like let asking God to open our minds, to help us to be free to think for ourselves. To, uh, and along those lines, I think, is what I prayed. And by the end of the prayer, I felt the atmosphere in the room change. Mm. And I understood why Graham said, you be the one to pray. Mm. So I, I began. I began from a completely larger view, embracing all of Scripture as a whole and, and relating each of the parts to the one central theme of the Great Controversy. I walked them through that. I also, I actually started with inspiration. I've dealt with inspiration briefly. Then I went into that, the way we read the Bible as a whole. And I, when I finished, one of the greatest opponents of my view smiled at me and said, that was awesome. Now would you please tell us how you put it into practice to deal with the atonement? And I began to deal with that. And it was like watching dominoes fall. <laughs> you know, they just started falling down. And uh, we ended up having a great discussion. And one of the questions that was raised, and this is the question that I, I would like to bring up. Jerry said, well, you read the, you know, in that article, she, Ellen White uses forensic language. Mm -hmm. What do you do with that? And, you know, in that setting, the worst thing you could say is, well, God is meeting us where we are and speaking a language we can understand because that would be taken as put down. Oh. <clears throat> You're not up to smart, up to, up oh. to stuff. Right, um, right. You're still so, in your diaper. Yeah. So um, I said, which might be true, but isn't very winsome. <laughs> <No>. yeah. <laughs> so I said, I want to take this article and I want to show you something with it. I said, Ellen White writes in appositional language. What's that? Well, an apposition in a sentence is a word that follows a word that is obscure that explains that word. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. I, I said, Ellen White writes in appositional language, she first will say it in a forensic way, and then she will restate it in a non-forensic way. And it was, that article was a perfect example of that. I took them through it and showed them. And that was the end of any. Do you start that article, it, which one it is? You know, I lost, I don't, I don't think I have it now. And I've tried to find it in the testimonies and I've had trouble finding it. But afterwards, um, the, the young woman who was larger view in the class said that 
the student who had been the other side's uh, mainstay of someone who supported their views came over to her house and she said, wasn't that fantastic? Dr. Sheldon didn't say anything about them, about the other side. She just presented her views. And of course she knew that they had done nothing but chop my position. It was, it was amazing. I, I think more was accomplished by action than by words that time. Um, I really, I really appreciate that explanation of the appositional language because I have noticed numerous places where she seems to say it both ways in the same sentence, and this that, that explains it. Yeah, that's exactly what she was doing. She was saying it both ways in the same sentence as an explanation, al almost the, the the Hebrew repetition in a in a different way. Yeah, yeah, she was she was saying it the way they're used to, and then restating it the way it really means. I also was at a seminar uh, with a Walla Walla University professor, Alden Thompson, mm -hmm. and he oh, yeah. took some of Ellen White's earlier writings and then her journey. And it was fascinating to see her own personal journey from a more penal legal model to a, a larger view. And to me, that just fits with Hebrews 11. God has all of us on a journey to move towards a greater understanding of who he is. So he, Eldon Thompson's point was, yeah, some people stick with what she wrote earlier because it comes from a more penal legal model and other people stick more with what she wrote later in her life, as well as what you've pointed out that oftentimes she mixed the two to help us on that journey. But it, that was fascinating to me to understand her own journey and give me hope for my own because I definitely came from a penal legal. And what won me is I sat in Maxwell's class and for sure, hopefully I remember a lot of what he said, but I loved how he dealt with people who were opposing his view. He was gentle, he was loving, he was winsome. Uh, and that was more powerful to me sometimes than what he said, but mm -hmm. it was how he said it that says that's loving spirit. 1979 and yeah. 80. Yeah. Unfortunately, some of us who come from a legal background and we become larger view, our initial reaction is to, to try to pound it on people's heads and, and get yeah. them to to see it our or way. Spirit intimidation. Well, I, my brain just, again, I appreciate so much, again, the concept. I think Tim brings this out, Jennings. You know, when we look at what happened in the garden, and, and sometimes we try to give ourselves credit for inventing sin, but of course we didn't. But what happened in the garden when reality got turned on its head, so to speak, the two people who God created who they know and they love and trust him, uh, suddenly go meet someone, uh, a thing, uh, a serpent that's very captivating, and they they have no history with, okay? But suddenly the credibility is there. They believe the lie. And what changed when they believe the lie? 
Did God's law change? Did God change? What did, did the devil change? What changed? I'm so glad you brought that up because the pathways in their brain probably changed. I mean, they, they were rash. They were irresponsible in their thinking. But I have a question about what happened in the garden that's been bothering me because I was listening to your tape this morning, Gene, and you brought out how the woman said, um, he deceived me. The serpent deceived me. And I thought, so she's recognizing that she was deceived, that she was wrong. So why couldn't they just go back to trusting God and everything be okay? She realized she messed up. The guy was a jerk. The serpent's a jerk. I think you you actually answered your own question just a minute ago. The brain pathways? Yeah. Once you believe a lie, even though you recognize you're believing a lie, you can't find your way back as easily to the truth. Well, exactly. And it has nothing to do with legal. No. It's, this is what I'm trying to get at. Adam and Eve changed. And, and whatever changed within them was not resolvable by some legal. penalty being paid or a legal solution. There was none. So maybe they still had this residual distrust that couldn't just be solved by saying. I had a friend say one time that if you have, if anyone ever says something bad about someone to me, I can never view that person the same, even though I know it's wrong. Yeah. So uh, what I'm, um, it wasn't just the garden. And it wasn't just their brain pathways. Because of the conflict before the earth, the fact that they trusted the serpent over God now sent the trajectory in another direction that God still had to demonstrate himself and the issues yes. of trustworthiness, love, freedom, uh, and rebellion and the natural consequence, not the imposed penalty. Right. And so uh, these are things that even if they weren't that far gone and it's like, yeah, okay, we can restore Adam and Eve. The questions about God and penalty and death and life and etc. now had to play out in a different way because you can't just legally adjust it you have to reveal the truth and so if the exactly. earth was going to reveal that truth even in a trusting rejecting the serpent way there was probably going to be something that played out in the long term because they they took the shortcut to the knowledge of good and evil but i have i just can't shake the fact that the universe had that on the table already as a shortcut and we shortcut the, the, the answer, <laughs> if you will. And so God had to take the longer path, regardless of how much they could be received back. Isn't broken trust always longer? I mean, is there a shortcut to broken trust? No. Well, like the universe had these questions still um, about satan they chose to stay loyal to god christ would have died i would think to show the natural consequence even if we hadn't fallen um the thing 
that strikes me is you also have one other aspect. You have a legalist in the picture mm-hmm. who is a contriver who has mm-hmm. totally false and disingenuous ways of dealing with things. Mm-hmm. And he claims jurisdiction over Adam and Eve. Because they believed him. They believed what I said. They're mine. Yep. Um, but then, and Adam and Eve, I mean, I'm just trying to to work it out. I'm not trying to be adversarial debating, but just okay. how people might object to me saying something, um, answering objections, anticipating objections. Eve could have said, no, no, I realize you're a jerk and I don't want any part of you anymore. And you see what I'm saying? I'm with God. But, but in a legal sense, that doesn't matter. You can't make that kind of claim. You have, it has to be legal. And so he's still making his legal case, but God just says that's irrelevant, right? These people are changed. Yeah, I, I think the fact that Adam and Eve blame each other means that they're still under the, the power of deception. That they're now acting out in their lives. They're now resembling the fruit of it. And, um, I, I, have, I have sometimes wondered if Adam had stayed true, if God could then have brought Eve back. But it was the fact that both of them jumped on the bandwagon that God says, we've, we've got to take the long road here. I, I, I want to inject something that, that's kind of a little bit in a different topic. Maybe we can just come back to it later. But uh, Sue was talking earlier about the the argument on the political side and and the reference to to augustine that we should take names and kick tail Uh, and certainly that's true in the in the political arena but i think it's also true here that there's this whole cloud of one the ways that one looks at things and it's the issue of authoritarianism that um in my experience a lot of the the people who gravitate toward the legal view of things are very, very authoritarian. And that's why this, all this love language, just, yeah, you know, that's, that's yeah. all, that's all, that's all a marshmallow God is, is very powerful. Bill and I both know says, you know, it, it, it's, it's so, so the question for me in the context of our discussion right now is I, I really kind of clueless on how to talk to someone who is coming from a very authoritarian mindset and 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 jumps immediately on the legal system because it's very authoritarian. I I, I, I don't know quite how to approach him. I don't either. <laughs> I'll be honest. But you uh, know, I was thinking of times when I have, and nothing got worked out. For example. Uh, when I was at Andrews University in the undergraduate program before I went to Loma Linda, it got word got out in my intermediate Hebrew class because we were dealing we were dealing with Romans in class. They got out word got out that I was not penal substitutionary atonement, and uh, I had a discussion with one of my classmates who later became a Bible teacher at the Union College, interestingly mm-hmm. enough. And he took issue with me and we went back and forth and I kept trying to show him some evidence. And finally I said, you know, there is another way of saying this that Ellen White makes very clear in the Science of the Times articles. 
I can take you into the library and show you that material if you'd like to see it. Nope. It was gone. Hmm. Wow. You know, authoritarian, my mother was extremely authoritarian and there's just no way I could talk to her. I mean, she was right. That's it. You know? And, And so when people are very vested in keeping power in play, I just give up. I just, I say. The one time I've made a dent, I've used bad methods. Bad methods? Maybe that, maybe I was reaching them where they were. Mm-hmm. I used methods of asking questions until they were tired. Mm. <laughs> You're in good company. That was Jesus style. Let them answer their own. I, but I, you know, I remember standing off one person with questions and he got so agitated. He just about fell apart in public, you know, it was, and and it has made me cautious about doing that ever since, because one thing we need to keep in mind, and, and maybe this relates to the text. So you follow the examples of one who inherit the promises through faith and patience. With an authoritarian person, you need an infinite amount of patience because the barriers break down very slowly. You cannot, you cannot expect them to go, oh, oh, of course, I see it your way. <laughs> they just aren't geared to do that. Well, how many of us, I can only speak for myself, let's put it that way, from a legal model and and as appealing and sensible as sitting in Graham Sabbath School was for me, um, and meeting Gene and talking about Babylonian mythology and how that applies to biblical thinking and all of this, still going through and over 15, 20 years, gradually letting the pendulum move from absolute legalist to the mixture to a less of a mixture to where today, I, I sit there and I know I had a legal model. I can sometimes pick out the language. I know when I hear it. And all I can say is it's 100% relational. There's zero legalism involved in my picture of God. And that he uses the language to meet us where we are. That all atonement theories have value and place in the biggest picture possible. And I still the idea of scapegoating Rene Girard and some others that, that really explore the, the blame game and the story of that we get in the Hebrew scriptures, that as soon as you leave God and that trust relational bubble, you start blaming each other. You start devouring each other. You start, uh, there's like, and the, those pathways change, that Christ on the cross is breaking all of that. Mm-hmm. and saying it is false it is a lie it will not produce love there's one way this happens and it's relational the law i mean when i started when i finally hit the 100 percent relational started looking at why then the law no not everyone is safe in freedom you know and so so there's um anyway i lost my train but the the fullness of a relational understanding doesn't discount the process of becoming. 
And I, I can't help but think that in the great hereafter, even as relational as I am, 100% by my own recollection, living in the reality of that relationship, a million years later, I'm going to say, man, I was still a legalist <laughs> when, <laughs> when God brought me to the great hereafter. Uh, how? You know, I, so I, my patience is with people. Um, I come to the questions, and I've seen people on this journey, things, uh, is the penalty imposed or a natural consequence? And even if they say imposed, who tells us this? But there's many, many questions. I don't know better ways because claims are claims. And if I can get people, and I don't want to do it publicly, but I, I think there are questions we could do. I think the problem for me, Bill, with questions was that I, I came on too hard and fast with those questions. Okay. I, and they were directed directly at a statement they had made instead of, instead of you're, you're gently, you're gently massaging it into place. So when I was, and in my younger years, I, well, I took on Robert Falkenberg when he was going around from, college, from university to university with the, the Commitment to God document, which was in my book, Heresy. I took him on publicly, asking him questions. Mm. And, and right. uh, I got some people very riled <laughs> because I did that. I so I've I've mellowed as I've gotten older. I'll just put it that but way. But didn't but didn't Paul take on Peter in a public setting when he, you know, reversed and avoided eating with the new Gentile Christians? And I go, Oh, yeah. what's the what's the Matthew 18 where you're supposed to go one on one? I go, he just yeah. completely one on one that. So I'm sure there's times and places to just stay one-on-one. And there's other times where we need to engage publicly when we recognize the, the gravity. If I were on trial, I would definitely engage directly. Um, but I want to always be sensitive to where a person is coming from, particularly on a one-to-one basis. Yes. Jesus seemed to be willing to embarrass the hierarchy. Well, he did it as a group. Well, I was going to say that. You know, he did it as a group so people could either wear the shoe if they thought it fit or not. You know what I mean? He didn't single a person out and go, you. He never called people by my name. Yeah. Hmm. The the issue with Peter was one of public display. I, uh, Peter had been, had the Cornelius experience. He was with the Gentiles, eating, socializing. And when the Judaizers came, Peter publicly changed. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in the situation, mm-hmm. it's not just a private matter. All of the people now confused by Peter had questions. Can um, I- uh, go, ahead, go ahead. Oh, no. Well, I mean, I'm just in relationship to that. I remember Graham Maxwell saying once, he said, where do we get the impression that everything that people who were apostles or prophets, etc., where do we get the impression that everything they did was right? He said, and then he, he cited Paul confronting Peter in public, Ellen White confronting the young pastor, like, who are you to pray standing up, you know, get down on your knees, young man. <laughs> and then um, Nehemiah tearing out the beards. He said, 
<laughs> you know, um, they're not always right. But it's there for our record to see, you know, that God still graciously meets us where we are. And I thought that was pretty good. Because, I mean, I think Paul could have taken Peter aside and said, Peter, you got it. You got to get with the program here. What are you doing? And then Peter could have, you know, publicly apologized in a way that was nice. You know, a little more saving of his, his self-respect. But think about everything the onlooking universe has with Earth. We are a public spectacle. Now, they don't know what's going on inside of our minds. I, I'm very comfortable in, in the great hereafter thinking that there was someone built, tuned into the build channel and they have questions. They can see the big picture. They see God's work. God is transparent. And they're like, okay, you're here. Now I've got questions about what you were thinking. And there's no guilt or shame associated with the memory. There's no tears, no fear. And so we're given this, I hope, given a gift of clarity to be able to go back, because to me, it's all to God's honor and glory and praise that he, that he won me back to trust, mm-hmm. assuming that that is what ends up happening. And, and I think when we look at Peter and some of these other stories, when we can go and it's in the, it's in the record, but we don't know what they were thinking. And I can look at, at Joseph or Isaiah or any of any of them, Manasseh, <laughs> what were you thinking? Well, I was I converted, and you know, but but we get to it's in the record, it's the evidence. How could we not want to explore that more and discover how much greater God is than even the record of evidence? Mm-hmm. That came from somewhere. <laughs> Don't you think? No, so? I, I I appreciate that that sharing, answering questions, and when I think about, because uh, there's lots of people I want to share this larger view with, I uh, and for me at least, what's been most powerful is sharing my own journey from penal legal to the larger view. So I'm just for me, this has been incredibly powerful and freeing, and I'm not. I had this recurring nightmare when I was a kid and Jesus had come and I'm seeing everybody go up into the clouds and I am not moving a bunch, not an inch. So I start jumping frantically, trying to get caught up in the air and it's not working, you know, and I go, that's directly from this penal legal fear-based, you're not good enough. You need to repent of every single sin, you know, and I, I don't have that, you know, I used to get this pit in my stomach when I hear people say, Jesus is coming. I'm like, oh, you know, and I don't have those reactions anymore. I don't have those nightmares anymore. Uh, you know, that because that I've been freed by seeing God say that I'm for you. I'm for you. And the you judge know. in Israel was, was for the defendant, is my understanding that that was the culture. The judge was always on the defendant's side. Yeah, I, I, I remember reading about Pilate in Desire of Ages, and I think that's one thing that really made me think I shouldn't be afraid of God at all because he, Pilate had had Christ scourged twice already, and he was about ready to hand him over to be crucified, and, and Christ knew that. And so Pilate 
says, uh, asks him a question, are you, I think maybe, are you the king of the Jews? He didn't answer. And he just, re- he just didn't bother to answer. And then um, Pilate says, don't you know that I have, I have the power over your life and death? And he says, yes, but you wouldn't have been put in that position unless God, you know, God gave it to you. So those who brought me to you, they have the greater sin. And then Ellen White says, in so in saying this, Christ tried to excuse as far as possible Pilate's sin, you know, choosing political um, success as opposed to what he knew was an innocent person being convicted to death. And um, he tried, he tried so hard to find any way he could to excuse Pilate's sin. He says, what is a record, what a record of this is, what a record is this of the judge of all the universe, you know, not verbatim quote, but paraphrased there. And I thought, why should I be afraid of God at all, you know? if he's always trying to excuse us as far as possible. And I wish more Adventists knew about what Ellen White really says about the character of God, because mm-hmm. I've, seen, I've met so many Adventists who are full of fear. The problem is, I was, I was one of them at one time, and I read the entire book, Desire of Ages, and thought that Ellen White did not believe in a loving God. That's how blind, how blind I was. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you, you, I remember you saying at one point you were an atheist. Um, I, that was when I was four. Okay. <laughs> I don't think that quite counts. <laughs> but, I mean, um, you know, Mark, you were mentioning um, it might be okay for some people to have the forensic view. And I, I guess when I became a Christian, I mean, that's what I was taught. So it kind of, you know, just merged into all the evidence that Christ rose from the dead. And so I'd, I'd, I'd make a mistake and I'd go, oh, well, my sins, you know, I didn't do it on purpose. And if I was too abrupt or whatever, my sins are forgiven, you know. And and that was kind of the, the thing I had. And then all of a sudden, these questions came into my mind. But if God forgives us our sins and asks us to forgive people, and not hold, take any revenge, not ask for any re- you know, retribution, anything like that, then how come he had to have blood, you know, to, to be able to forgive us? Why? If he says, you guys forgive everybody, if they say they're sorry, forgive them. Seven times seven. Why couldn't God just do that? Why do you have to have blood in order to do it? I, would like- I don't understand why people are asking these questions. <laughs> okay. I, can I answer that question? Mm-hmm attempt an answer i don't know my answer may not be the best i'll give a shot at it um i did a study of the blood of jesus biblically because even as a child i remember standing on the bank of a river while some people were being baptized before i was baptized so i was like 10 and uh, they were singing oh now i see the crimson wave (laughs) and uh I was, I was grossing out and, and struggling not to feel rebellious and, and feeling like I was a terrible sinner because I had these feelings about that song. And um, so I, it led me years and years later to do this study. And 
What I discovered is that the blood that the Gospels mention is not the blood from his thorny crown. It's not the blood from the nails in his hands and feet. It's, it's the blood from his pores that he's shed mm. in Gethsemane. And it's the blood from his pierced side. I remember That's the only blood, and it frames, it actually frames the story of Jesus in Gethsemane to his death. His mental suffering, his mental anguish. So, I remember bringing that out. I love that. The blood represents the way he died. He didn't die from crucifixion. Right. The fear in his side didn't kill him. Right. It only revealed that he died from the weight of sin and the anguish that it caused. He felt the guilt. He felt, he felt it vicariously. And I'm using that word not in a legal way, but in an experiential way. He felt it vicariously uh, because he had such great empathy and because sin was laid on him. And so here's the way I reason this out. Because of the lie, you shall not surely die. God had to show him publicly dying, use Romans 1, Romans 3 language, mm-hmm. yeah. as a sacrifice of atonement. Because in over t- all, in previous times, he passed over sin. Sin did not lead to death. And because the universe, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, the universe had never seen death before. God was at a disadvantage. Because they didn't know what death was. They didn't know who to believe. We've never seen death before. How can it be true? The sin leads to death. Maybe this isn't sin. What is, what is going on here? And so Jesus died, and his blood being shed in his pores is only from hematridosis. It is. I had a student with that condition. He asked to write his paper on the atonement, on the death of Jesus, and, and the, actually, the, the, actually the Garden of Gethsemane, because he was so taken by what I told him about that. He was like, I have that. I have experienced that. It, it was, he had an illness that was actually considered, he had to have psychotic, antipsychotic medication because he had physiologically triggered depression that was so severe that he would bleed through the pores of his wow. forehead. So Jesus suffered that. This is what sin does. Sin destroys you from the inside out. Sin destroys your mind. It destroys your wholeness. It destroys everything about you. And that had to be demonstrated. And that's the meaning of the blood. Because how if you forgive someone in that condition without demonstrating the truth, which is the blood, the blood represents the truth about sin and about God. Uh, if you do that without the truth, you're setting them up to fall. So God didn't need it as payment. You so know. this doesn't do anything for God. This does everything for us. Exactly. Now, putting the verse in there, do you hear Jesus saying, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin? We can't accept it. Without the shedding of blood, we can't accept forgiveness. Mm-hmm. This is for us. This is not and, for us. When Jesus cried on the cross, Eli, 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 and I 
sure I'm not saying this correctly. Eli, Eli Lama Shabbatanain. How do you say that in Eloi, Eloi. Eloi. Lama Shabbatanain? You said it. And so he's he's experiencing that separation from God at that point in time by taking on our sins. And he would have died in Gethsemane, right? Because he was starting that process, but but um, he needed to show that to the universe, to the beastly system at the time, the combination of civil and religious authorities that had got him to the cross, right? But I mean, he, he died that separation that uh, if Adam and Eve had immediately experienced, everybody would have been totally confused, right? And would have misconstrued that God was killing them if they had immediately, that's why he passed over. And even though we died physically, we didn't die from that separation of God. Correct? Am I right in how I'm saying that, Jean? No, that's how I see it. Yeah. Okay. So, so see, Exodus 33 no, Exodus 34, 6 and 7 make it clear that God is the forgiver. It's in the participle form, which means God is the one who forgives. You can't change that. You can't make it so when it's not, when it's already so. That's not why Jesus shed his blood. It's well, to make and Jesus. But we automatically assume, oh, we cannot forgive unless someone forgives us. Yeah. Well, we're not forgiven if we don't believe someone forgives us. We aren't forgiven if we don't accept someone's forgiveness. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, what's easier to say to this man, rise, take up your bed and walk, or your sins are forgiven? He said it the other way. That's excellent. That's an excellent example of how that works. Well, you know, with the crimson waves stuff that you mentioned, Jean, um, when I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my mind around how certain words that Ellen White used, and in, in the Bible too, you know, Romans three, it's translated appreciation or atonement. I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my mind about how does how this fits into this larger view that I loved. I, I thought it must not be true. The larger view must not be true, as far as what the Bible and Ellen White says about the death of Christ. And if that's what the Bible says about the death of Christ, uh, and Ellen White says about the death of Christ, that's that's what it is. I cannot believe this heinous stuff. I just can't do it. And I left. I left Christianity because I thought I have no answers. I have no answers. I don't understand. And I refuse to believe this. And so that's why I think it's very important for us to say um, there are big, big problems, you know, with the forensic view. And we need to, yes, gently try to, to explain it to people, but to try to explain it to people. Because I think eventually, if, if you're a thinking person, you're going to leave. If you, if you care at all about what you're believing. I think once... Once we've tasted, so to speak, the larger view, we have nowhere else to go. Yeah. I, I kept thinking it satisfies, us. it satisfies us, it answers our questions, it may mm-hmm. helps us trust God, it, it helps us fall in love with him, it helps us have a relationship with him. And and how can mm-hmm. if, if you come if you come to think that that's not true, 
or that you can't share it, which is what the way I went <laughs> early after my conversion. I was afraid that this was not the last message to be shared. You have nothing. And it threw me into a terrible pit of depression. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I think that explains the the run-up to the verse to, for today in, in mm-hmm. Hebrews uh, there where he said, yeah, if, you've, if you've tasted that and said, nah, I don't want that, I, I, I don't, for me personally, I don't think there'd be any way back from that. How well, can I, I was, come back from that? When I was away for seven years, I kept thinking at the beginning of the day, you know, I, I'd ask God to be with me because I figured there has to be a God. You know, I mean, to me, there just had to be a God and he had to be loving. Um, otherwise, why would people? I mean, it's just complex. We're, we're, we had to be designed and we, we flourish upon love. So God had to be loving. But that's as far as I could take it because what I thought Christianity, what the Bible was saying about God and what Ellen White was saying about God was just too horrific to ever embrace. Just like Bill Maurer, I listened to him sometimes saying, well, why not? Why would this? Why would that? You know, and I think, oh, Bill, if, you know, if only you had brought, been exposed earlier. Now he's kind of so in, entrenched in it. But um, anyway, uh, I, I would remember thinking, well, how do I know God hears my prayer? You know, how do I know he cares? And it all go back to what Graham taught me about God, you know, in class, what I heard. And yet I thought, um, but I can't believe that Bible. I just can't believe that hideous philosophy that God had to have blood before he'd be willing to forgive us. You know, it's just too awful. I'm, I'm going to have to uh, draw this to a close I'm sorry to have to cut it short, Sue. Uh, Bill needs to leave, and he's the one in charge of. Oh, sorry, Bill. <laughs> so this will hopefully come back again, and we can go for round two uh, mm-hmm. on this topic. Um, let's have prayer, and then Bill can get on his way. Gracious Father, we we thank you so much for the freedom we have to discuss these very important issues, very important concepts. We thank you for the way you have led us and have ministered to our needs and have brought us out of darkness into light. We pray that we may not abuse that privilege that you've given us, but may share it with as many people as possible. Be with us and go with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.